0: Uh, why don't you open up your Bibles to John chapter 7 where we will close out the 7th chapter of this gospel and begin the 8th chapter this morning. We're going to be looking at John chapter 7 verse 53 through John 8 11. And as you are turning there, I have to confess, this week has been rather difficult for preparation. You may have noticed that Trent did not read this text. Uh, That was intentional. And if you've made your way to John chapter 7, you may also notice that there's a note preceding the text, unless maybe you're reading from the King James Version. But if you're reading from any other translation, you might notice there's a note either preceding the text or there might be a footnote regarding the the text that we're going to look at this morning. earliest manuscripts, it says do not include 753 through 811. Now my ESV at the bottom has that note and also says that some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Others add the passage here or after 736 or after 2125 or after Luke 2138 with variations in the text. So, seeing that, some of you may ask the question, well, should we study this at all then? Is this Scripture? And if it is not, then why should we look at it? Or, well, how did it get there? If it's not Scripture, then how is it there? And if it is Scripture, then why does it not appear in some of the early manuscripts? If you ask that question, I would respond... I'm glad you asked. Because Blake and I have asked the same question. This is a difficult thing. For those of you who were here early on in the life of Sulphur Community Church as we were going through Mark's Gospel, you may recall that we had something similar happen there at the very end. And what we decided as a church, as church leadership, was that we're going to look at it but we will tread carefully and pull from it the principles that we see there that we do know are in Scripture. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to tread carefully on the ground of this section because I will tell you from the beginning, uh, Blake and I and also Trent have been in discussion, and we do not believe this is, was originally written by John, that this was not a part of John's original gospel. And so it does not provide for us a firm foundation or basis or authority upon which we can determine and formulate doctrinal beliefs. I want to be transparent. So what we will do is we will look briefly, hopefully briefly, at the reasons why the New Testament scholars do not believe this was originally part of the gospel, why, should, why this should not cause us to doubt the rest of Scripture, And then we will spend the remaining time looking at the attributes of Christ presented in this narrative that are consistent with those sections of Scripture that we do believe are divinely inspired. This is what I want us to do this morning. I want you to see Christ. That's what I want. Just like any other morning. I want you to see Jesus as presented in the text that we're going to look at, and looking at other sections of Scripture, which is what we already do anyway. My goal is to teach this in a way that would be honoring to Christ by displaying the very attributes that we're going to see from Him describing Him this morning. That He is humble, that he is truthful, and he's compassionate. So as I speak this morning, that is my aim. I want to be humble. I want to be truthful, and I want to be compassionate. So first, if some of you are like, oh man, this is is already a lot. (laughs) I'm going to give you, we're going to go high level, okay? High level scholarship, textual criticism. I'm going to say some words that, Hopefully, I've tried to remove them, or if I do do say them, I will define them. But you may not understand the words, all that I say, but I want you to see the big picture, why scholars, most New Testament scholars, do not believe this was part of the earliest manuscript, why you should be okay with that, if that's the case, and you can trust the rest of Scripture, and then we'll look at Jesus. First, Why do we believe that this was not a part of the original gospel written by John? First, no Greek manuscripts include the story until the 5th century. What does that mean? This would mean that we have a little under 100 of the earliest manuscripts dating all the way back to 125 AD that don't have this story in it. Secondly, in their commentaries on the gospel of John, all of the earliest church fathers omit this passage when they're talking about John's gospel. They go directly from John 7.52 to 8.12. In fact, no Eastern church father cites the passage until the 10th century. When it does show up in manuscripts, as the note in my ESV indicates, it shows up in multiple places. Sometimes after 7.36, after 7.44, here where we are this morning after 2125 and in one manuscript it even shows up in Luke's gospel. Now those are extra biblical reasons. Those are reasons from coming from external evidence. But let's look at scripture itself. The flow of the gospel would work well if we skipped over this section, going from 752 directly to 812. If you remember that passage where we left off, Jesus would have just finished declaring in the middle of one of the rituals at that great feast that he would provide living water. And then he would go directly from that to declaring, as we will see in the coming weeks, that he's the light of the world in a second ritual during that feast. It would make sense. It would flow. Other internal evidence exists in the style and vocabulary used here. There are 13 words used in these verses that John doesn't use anywhere else. Words such as scribes. You'll see that he's going to pair the scribes and the Pharisees, which, you know, for those of us who are uh, educated and we've read the Gospels, you know, that typically we see that, right? We see that, but not in John's Gospel. You won't see that in John's Gospel. That didn't happen until later on. There would have been plenty of opportunities for John to do that if if, if that was his style. But we don't see it. Now again, we're just doing this briefly, but if you're really interested in the topic, I always tell you, don't just take my word for it. If you're you're really questioning this, I want you to go home and I want you to perform your own due diligence and see what you you find. Because there are a lot of much more intelligent men than than I am. I'm simply... Taking from what they've seen and what the, the evidence that they've provided. And know that this is not the the only passage in which this occurs. I've already mentioned the end of Mark. But if you would look in your Bible, sometimes you'll also realize that some verses have been completely removed, with no, they're not left as, you know, we have a huge section here that's left in there with a note preceding and a footnote. Sometimes they're taken out give you an example, Matthew 17, 21, Matthew 18, 11, and we've already seen one in John's gospel, John chapter 5, verse 4. If you go back and read John 5, you'll see it goes John 5, 3, skips over 4, and goes directly to John 5, 5. There's a footnote, though. There's a footnote saying, hey, some, some of the later manuscripts do include this verse, and it says this. Now, to some of you, that may be troubling. Some of you are already starting to, okay, go warm up the coals. We're going to burn this dude at the stake because he's a heretic. First off, I would assure you, I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this. I mean, I mean, I don't know about your translation, but my Bible, the editors, and this is a commonly used translation, at the very top, they even talk about this. The earliest manuscripts don't include this. If you're greatly troubled, I would encourage you to go home and look into it yourself. It is worth noting, however, you know, one of the things I was worried about is some of you might love this story. I mean, this is a story of Jesus being brought a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and Jesus says, well, those of you who are without sin among you, cast the first stone brilliant response. You're telling me that didn't happen? Actually, I'm not saying that. I will say this. The evidence, and most of these New Testament scholars will say that there is a lot of factual legitimacy to the historical accuracy of the event that we have described here. More than likely, this actually happened. So you can still enjoy this story. We just don't think it was inspired by God. And written by John. So you understand the difference there. It's as if you were going to read a commentary on the life of Jesus, if somebody were giving you all the historical events. Remember, John doesn't record everything that happened in Jesus' life, right? You know this. We talk about it every week. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, John gives us the purpose for his gospel. Jesus did many other signs. But these, the ones that I specifically wrote about, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He is God come to earth, God in the flesh, and so that by believing that, you would have life in His name. John is not looking for a history book here. He wants you to see Jesus Christ as God in the flesh. More than likely, this event did happen. It just doesn't serve as authority or a basis for us to live by. But what we're going to see this morning, and what I hope you take great comfort in, is that what this does say about Jesus, we see elsewhere. We can agree that the attributes of Christ presented here, His humility, His truthfulness, His compassion, well, that's consistent with with Scripture. So I'm trying to be very careful this morning because my belief is that this is not Scripture. It is a text but we're going to spend our time going through it this morning. I would would also like to address one more troubling aspect before we move on. Despite the fact that there are some sections or verses in Scripture that are questioned as to whether or not they belong by the majority of scholarship, as we have found more and more documents early on from when they were written, you can trust that God's Word is inerrant what do I mean by that? That means that Scripture, in particular focused this morning, the New Testament, in its original form is without error. There are no mistakes. Problem is, none of those exist anymore. We don't have those. But I want to, first, I want to give you comfort in knowing that that Scripture is without error. First, we're going to look at the same way we did with why we don't believe this is part of Scripture and divinely inspired. We're going to look at the extra-biblical evidence, evidence that we can see outside of Scripture itself. First thing, so many of the most trusted non-Christian historians, dating all the way back to 52 AD, just a couple, 20 years after the, life, the death of Jesus, they record some of the same events that show up in the New Testament. Men like Thallus and Tacitus and many others discuss Jesus in their records. When it comes to scholarship and textual criticism, the most compelling evidence is the mere number of copies of this work, the earliest copy, and the span of time that exists from when it was originally written and the date of our first copy that we have. I'll give you a few early works that you can compare. Some of you are familiar with some of these things that I'm going to tell you, so I I hope that you would just listen to it again because we're going to go somewhere more spiritual. This is kind of like a lecture, I understand. But I want to give you confidence that you can trust Scripture. I mean, you're going to commit to reading this thing for the next two years. You should be able to trust what it says and that it's true. Caesar's Gallic Wars, originally written sometime between 100 B.C. and 44 B.C., earliest copy that we have that exists today, 900 AD, which means that there is a span of a thousand years from when it was originally written to the first copy that we have. What does that mean? Well, how were these things, how was literature passed on before 1450 when the Gutenberg Press was invented? We're going to read about scribes today, right? That's how it happened. And so you may wonder, okay, well, How then could some of these things have been made its way into Scripture? Well, think about this. I don't know about you. Even in my reading of Scripture, sometimes I write notes in the margins, things that that stand out to me, whether it be, hey, this is a reference to this part of Scripture, or, hey, remember this story, or maybe it's my personal application. Scribes did that too. We have evidence that the scribes would write notes in the margins, well, what happens after that scribe passes away and then another scribe takes that document, right? Because it's going to be copied. Well, now I've got a dilemma. I've got this note here about something that Jesus said or did. Did the scribe before me forget to put it in there? Because there was no like delete. There's no white out. Or is that his note? And so now you, the scribe is left to a decision. Well, I don't know what to do here. That may be one way. Or it could have been an oral tradition, which is likely the case that we had happen with the text that we're going to look at this morning, where it was a story that had been passed on orally from generation to generation, and maybe the scribe thought about that story as he's reading all of this about Jesus. Whether the scribe saw it here or after 744 or after Luke 21, in the different places that we see it show up, at some point, maybe a scribe wrote this story because it reminded them about something that Jesus had said, that they had heard from their mother and their grandmother that had been passed down to them. The more time that exists between when the first, the first uh, original manuscript was written and the first one exists that we can document allows for more of that stuff to happen, right? Because it's being copied more and more and more. Caesar's Gallic Wars, there was a thousand years. The good news is, is, if you have a lot of copies of something, well, then you can kind of weed out those errors. It makes sense, right? If, you, if we all copy the same thing over and over and over, we can almost, for, for our purposes, we can lay them on top of one another. And if we see, oh, well, there's an extra word here, well, that may, not, that may not be part of the original text. In fact, it only shows up in this one manuscript. More than likely, something happened there, there was a mistake. We are prone to error. I don't know about you. I type reports a lot for my my career. I do internal audit kind of stuff, and I have to type reports that go to the board. I hate grammar errors. I was talking to Natalie like, I wish that we could write as we speak. I hate the fact that you can't end a sentence with a preposition. That is so stupid. Everybody talks that way, but when we write something or type something, we can't do it. Well, I make a lot of mistakes. Scribes can make mistakes when they're writing things down. But if you have a lot of copies, it kind of narrows it down, right? Ten copies of Caesar. Ten. Almost all scholars believe that we have, more than likely, what he originally wrote. Plato. Plato. Tetralogy originally written around 400 B.C., earliest copy is 900, a span of 1,300 years. That's a lot of time where errors can happen. Seven total copies. The works of Aristotle, written in 384 B.C. or 322, somewhere in that range, earliest copy is 1,100, which is a span of about 1,400 years. 193 copies exist. Homer's Iliad. Anybody read that in school? Written in 900 B.C., earliest copy is from 400 A.D., which is a span of 1,500 years. 643 copies exist. That's a lot. When you're talking about historical literature, that is a lot. New Testament. Written between 50 and 100 A.D., guess when the earliest copy is? 125 A.D it is a fragment. It's really cool. I saw it on, uh, online. There's like this institute that takes pictures of the original manuscripts so that we can preserve them digitally now. It's like the size of a business card. And what I love is John's gospel. And it's not the whole gospel, but it's, it's a fragment from John's gospel. You can, go, you can go online and look at it. 125 AD. That's a span of, what, 75 years at most? compared to the thousands of years that exist from the other ones? We have over 25,000 copies exist, and I'm not talking about our copies. I'm talking about manuscript copies before the Gutenberg Press was invented, which, by the way, if you're interested in that, go read about that, because you want to talk about God's providence and providing scripture and common man's language during the Reformation? The Gutenberg Press is more than just a cool technology thing we're talking about 25,000 copies exist before the Gutenberg press, and almost 6,000 of those appear prior to the 10th century. That's a span of 900 years from the original manuscripts. Why do I tell you all that? Because when you combine that evidence with the intense opposition that Christianity faced and the scrutiny under which God's word has endured— And also taking into consideration the number of people who have died to preserve this book, you can know that we have the most researched, purified, documented work of literature in the history of mankind. That's the external evidence. If I would stop there, you as a Christian should call me out and say, That's not enough. Because this book is it serves as the basis for all truth. So inside of it, we should see something else speaking to this, right? We should see some internal evidence. Good news is we do. Since we're studying John's gospel, let's start there. In John chapter 14, verse 25 through 26, Jesus tells his disciples, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In John 16, 12 through 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus tells them that the Holy Spirit would teach them in truth and remind them of all the things that Jesus had taught them. And you remember what Jesus told them at the very end of Matthew's gospel? Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Teaching them what? All the things that I have commanded to you because the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to remind you of these things so that you can speak authoritatively the words of God. So what do we have? That takes care of Matthew takes care of John. First and second, Peter. First, second, and third, John and Revelation. Well, then you go to Paul. The bulk of the New Testament, written by Paul. He himself was an apostle of Jesus Christ as he saw Christ face to face on the road to Damascus, commissioned by Christ to bring the gospel, to bring this truth to the Gentiles. Paul wrote things like he did in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6-10. through to point to the divine inspiration of, of what he wrote, he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Paul says, what I'm writing is coming from God. And if that isn't enough evidence, I'm okay with that. Because Peter himself, remember we go back, the apostle, commissioned by God, commissioned by Christ, the Spirit's going to come and remind him, Peter himself also confirms what Paul wrote. If you look at 2 Peter verses 3, 15 through 16, I love this. This is really cool. Like if you're going to do detective work and you're going to say, okay, what's the authenticity of this? Is it really inspired? Well, if you start off with the inspiration that Peter had knowing, being reminded of the things of the Spirit, and then you see Peter confirming what Paul wrote. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul Also, wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters. When he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Get this, as they do the other scriptures. He is putting Paul's letters in line with the rest of scripture, they are twisted by the unstable. They are manipulated like they do the rest of Scripture. Here we have an apostle of Jesus Christ affirming the writings of Paul as divinely inspired. Fast forward through this because I know this is a lecture and we want to look at Jesus, right? Mark, Luke, and Acts were acknowledged as Scripture early on because of the close association Mark had with Peter, Luke had with Paul. Jude and James were accepted as well due to their connection to Jesus although it did take a little while for Jude because he mentioned something that he references something. And for those of you who have been through Bible study methods, we looked at this. It was like a, a, I think it was from Enoch. And that has been determined as not scripture, but he references that. And all he was doing there was using something that would have been familiar so he could get the point across. But that's what Jude did. But it took a little time for the early church fathers to accept that as part of the canon. Hebrews was probably the most debated simply because we don't know who wrote it. Although it does look like Paul. has the same kind of style. But it was determined that it contained truth that did not contradict anything else in Scripture as well. And that's key. Whenever, whenever they go back, if you were to read about how we got the books that we did, a lot of due diligence went in, does it contradict anything else we see in Scripture? You can be confident that it... Scripture doesn't contradict itself. So when you combine the divine authorship through these men, how works written over the course of centuries, when including the Old Testament, work together that there is no contradiction, and you consider the attributes of God, holy, perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful, His inability to lie, you can trust in the internal evidence as well as the external. That should give you great comfort. Now, I realize that came off as more of a lecture, but I felt it was important for us to understand. So before we move into the text, let's take a step back and consider what, all that we've just heard. God has provided this sacred book for us. Over the course of history, he has worked to preserve the truths of this book. He has inspired the things written in this book, and he is changing lives because of what is in this book. This is God's word. And as a church, we have committed to reading this over the next two years. And when you do, I would challenge you don't just read it to keep up with a plan. Don't just read it to gain knowledge and become a smarter sinner. It is God's revelation to us about who he is, what he is, has, and will do, and how we fit in that plan. As has been said from this pulpit before, it is not a playbook for our lives. It is not a guide to success for our life. My prayer in regards to this reading plan for our church, our our prayer team that met this morning, we prayed this, that there would be unity among us as we read this together and that our view of Scripture would grow, our trust in God's Word would be enhanced and that we would see Christ magnified above all from the very beginning, even in Genesis. I hope you saw that in Genesis 3 this week when you read it. When you see the curse of man, from the very beginning of the fall, there was a promise that there would be reconciliation, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. His heel would be bruised. But he would put an end to Satan's tyranny. His head would be crushed. That's the first gospel. It's right there in Genesis 3 from the very beginning. It's all leading that way. I hope you see that when you're reading scripture. It's not just a history book. It can seem like that, I understand. When so-and-so had this kid, and this kid, and this kid, and then that kid had this kid. Look, I understand, that part's difficult. But look for those things like, wait a minute, Enoch, Enoch was, and then he wasn't? What is that about? There was a flood of the whole earth, but God providentially and graciously select, selected this man and his family That man was a sinner just like the rest of us are. You saw what happened afterwards. He gets drunk. Lays himself exposed. But God is always at work. I want you to see that in Scripture. The Scriptures provide us with spiritual nourishment, and God saw fit to provide us with that nourishment. To borrow from the Old Testament, it's as if, This was provided to us just like God provided manna from heaven for the wandering Israelites. To continue with that picture, how silly would it be of us not to go out and gather our portion each day and to consume it all. May this be our perspective over the course of the next two years and the rest of our lives. As we search the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, for the revelation of the Son of God, all to the glory of God the Father. So now that we're all on the same page, let's look at our our text here. Let's look at three attributes of Christ portrayed here in these verses that are affirmed in Scripture. First, we will see the humility of Christ, then we'll see the truthfulness of Christ, and then we'll see Christ's compassion. So first, 753 through 82, the humility of Christ. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. First, we see Jesus, the creator of all things, as we saw in John 1, right? Nothing has been created. Without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator of all things. He had no place of his own to lay his head. It's a wonderful illustration of his humility. Now, for some of us, no further illustration is needed because we know what that's like. Some of us know what it's like to have to look for a place to live and not know where that's going to be to not know where we're going to lay our head that night. Some of us might be a little disturbed at the fact that there may be some among you that actually know what that's like because you never even had to question that. Some of us have gone through the poverty simulation, so we have a little bit of an idea. But how can we possibly relate our situation to what Christ did? I want you to think about this. This was the way of life for Jesus. When he was born, he was laid in a manger. Why? There was no room for him in the inn. During his ministry, a a scribe approaches him out of his zeal and says, I'm going to follow you wherever you will go. Matthew 8 20 says, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Last night, as I was reflecting on this truth about Christ, resting in the comfort of my own home, the tranquility of our fireplace blazing, I thought about and imagined what Jesus would be doing on a night like that. The King of kings and Lord of lords had no place to lay his head. I'm sure, you know, maybe a kind stranger would have taken him in on a night like last night when it was really cold. But not likely. Because you see, he wouldn't have appeared any different than any other homeless man in a city with a large population. So why him? I wonder how many people in our own city slept on the cold, hard ground last night. No place to lay their head. I imagine Jesus might have been one of those people. Even though at his spoken word he could have established a kingdom, he could have been comfortable, creator of all things, ruler of all things, he could have had whatever he wanted at the mention of his word. But he gave that up. Humility was a way of life for Jesus. We also see humility in verse 2 of chapter 8 as he returns to the temple. After a night of rest up in the mountains, he returns to the temple as inconspicuously as he had probably left the night before. He sits down and he teaches. There's no triumphal entry. There's no herald of angels announcing his coming. He just walks in. Takes a seat and teaches. Now, you could note that he he did receive attention. We talked about that last week. Why would he have received attention? Because no man ever spoke like this man. No man ever taught like him. And so you see people, crowd, gather around him because they want to know what he has to say. But we're talking about the creator of all things. The Lord of Lords. He just walks in. Sits down to teach. He retains his humility. Now, those two examples are but small fragments of the big picture of Christ's humility. I feel the most exhaustive description of Christ's humility is in Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does that mean for us? When you see the humility of Christ on display, how do we apply that How can we take that truth and live that out? What does that look like? My mentor in the ministry always used to say that our orthodoxy should influence and lead to orthopraxy. He used big words because he was a really smart guy. What that means is orthodoxy, right thinking. Our right thinking should lead to right practice. That's why it's important for you to spend time in God's Word. Because by the renewing of your mind each day, it will lead to orthopraxy. It will lead to right practice. My first thought of implication for this attribute is worship. Let's, let's first think about right thinking. When we know more about who Christ is, it's going to lead to practice, but we first have to spend time there. That's where we have to start. This week, I was... Uh, I started a devotional as part of my reading plan, Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. And I've been paying attention to some of the, uh, the things that he writes, and I've been keeping track of quotes. I also read a cray's book this week. That was really good, by the way. Um, and one of the things that Spurgeon said was those who do not long for more of Christ don't know anything of him yet. Because when you get to know who Christ is, even a small fragment of who he is, humility, you want to know more about him. You want to know him deeper. So it should result in worship. And I'm not talking about singing songs to him alone. Not to take away from that. That's important. And I'm not talking about doing things for him. Our hearts should resonate with strong affections for our Christ who has humbled himself to obey his father because we didn't. The one who is everything made himself nothing. The king took on the form of a servant. God became man and died so that we may live. Praise Jesus. That's our king. That's our savior the humble Christ. Other thoughts of implication are the resulting humility that should be seen in our own lives. So this is the praxis practice. When you think correctly, it should lead to right practice. And I'm not talking about a fake humility that stems from a legalistic mindset to be humble because that's Christian. That's what we're supposed to do. And I'm not talking about humility expressed in you following the model of Jesus where you sell everything you have so that you can be homeless and humble like him. Listen, church, that would be far too cheap of humility. That's not what we're called to do. Instead, I'm referring to the type of humility that results in us laying down our personal desires daily for the sake of the gospel. I'm talking about the the type of humility where we go to the extreme and it results as Paul puts in Philippians 2 that we would count others more significant than ourselves. That as we look to our own interests we would also look to the interests of others. Where we would give up of our liberties for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he would be made much of. Whatever that may be, I don't know what that looks like. You're going to have to spend time praying about that. Is it space in your home? Difficult thing to do. (laughs) But you might have to give it up for the sake of the gospel. Is it time? Is it comfort? Paul talks about eating meat sacrificed to idols. What's your meat sacrificed to idols? Is it alcohol? Scripture doesn't prohibit drinking alcohol unless you're getting drunk, you're addicted and controlled by it, or it causes someone else to stumble. And if that's the case, Paul says, to modernize it, I'll never drink a drop ever again. I'll give it up for the sake of my Savior and King, Jesus Christ, so that he would be made much of. I don't want to take anything away from him. That's the kind of humility we're called to. We should see that manifesting in our lives as we continue to get to know our Savior and see His humility expressed in death on a cross for us. That's challenging. That's challenging to me. It's been challenging all week. Because I don't want to empty myself just because I'm fake. I don't want to do things just because it's the right thing to do and people are looking and I'm supposed to do it. Man, I want to do it because I'm sold out because I love Jesus and I want Him to be made known. That's what I want. Sometimes. that may seem impossible to you. That's a hard thing to follow, right? Christ is the standard of humility and we're supposed to strive to live for that and we fail at doing that on a daily basis good news. What does Paul say? You can have this mind of humility among yourselves because we see it in Christ. And that Spirit of God imparts that humility to us where we can manifest that. It can happen. It may happen gradually, but it can happen. Second attribute of Christ that we see, the truthfulness of Christ. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. In this section, the truthfulness of Christ is so clearly seen when you contrast it With the deceitful acts and speech of the Pharisees. It is so evident. Let's set this scene up, right? Jesus is there, he's in the temple, he's teaching, he's got a crowd around him. The religious leaders enter and they throw this woman before the crowd, announce in everyone's presence we've caught this woman in the act of adultery. They publicly shame her. That would be the first evidence that something was going on, and I'll point that out. There's something wrong here. But they throw this woman out there, say, okay, Jesus, law says we're supposed to stone her, which was not inaccurate, but it wasn't completely true either. Because you see, they're, they're referencing the law from Deuteronomy 22. And we're going to read that. And I want you to pay attention and you tell me what's missing here in this picture. Deuteronomy 22:22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So question. If this woman was caught in the act of adultery and they're trying to uphold the law. Where's the man? This law that they're referring to states that both should be put to death, yet they only bring in the woman. The author of this section, whoever it might be, right? The author of this section confirms our suspicion in telling us that they were doing this to test Jesus with the ultimate purpose that they might have something on him that they could bring forth to to charge him with. This is typical of what we see throughout the Gospels, right? You understand now, as you're starting to see this this narrative play out, why most scholars believe this actually happened? Because it it, it sounds like something that would happen. This is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, this is what they always did. They're always trying to trap Jesus. Already we saw in John's Gospel that they were seeking to kill him because he said that he was the Son of God, making himself equal with God. This appears to be another futile attempt Of these men to trap him. Now, before we look at Jesus' response, I want to, one more thing I think is worth mentioning. These were the religious leaders. They're the leaders, the men responsible for the interpretation and instruction of God's law to lead people in holiness. But what do we see here? They don't care about the law, they don't care about upholding the law. They don't even care about people. This woman is a person that they have been entrusted with to lead. And for them, she's just collateral damage. She's just a pawn in their scheme to trap Jesus. This woman, while yes, she is a sinner, she was caught in the act of adultery, was publicly shamed for her sin, but not for the sake of holiness, not for the sake of righteousness, only for the sake of their own pride and their evil intentions. And I love Jesus' response. Such a Jesus thing to say. It reminds me whenever he was asked about the taxes, and what does he say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's, and people are left in awe. Like, whoa, didn't see that coming. See, the thing that they're trying to do here is they're trying to trap him. Are you going to be just or are you going to be merciful? And for them, if he picks one or the other, they've got him. If he says, Well, I'm going to act mercifully to this woman, now they can charge him. Well, he's breaking the law, he is being unjust. But if he doesn't act mercifully, then they say, Well, this isn't a merciful, compassionate Christ, this isn't the Savior. Now, we won't spend our time speculating about what Jesus was doing when he wrote with his finger in the ground. Nobody knows. You can go read novels if you want to talk about that. We won't speculate because it's not there. Instead, let's look at what we do know is there and we'll look at the words that were recorded. Jesus says, Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Brilliant. This is brilliant. Jesus does three things here. First, he references an additional portion of the law in Deuteronomy. It's coming, going to come from Deuteronomy 17 to point out the truth of God's law and the practice of it. Deuteronomy 17:6 through 7 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst. The reason God put that law into place is because you didn't want speculation going about, and all of a sudden, somebody who heard from somebody else, who heard from somebody else, who heard from somebody else, starts the stoning, starts the killing, because they don't even know what happened. So what it says is, the witnesses, those who have actually witnessed it, you'll be the first ones, and then everybody else. So Jesus points this to them. is like, okay, cast the first stone. He's referencing Deuteronomy 17. Secondly, he upholds the law. He doesn't deny the woman's guilt, proving that he's just. This, this means that he does not imply that we, have, we don't have grounds for judging one another, right? A lot of people have taken this and they've abused it to say, well, who are you to judge? Cast the first stone. You who is without sin cast the first stone. That's not what Jesus is doing here. That's not a principle. Number one, we don't even think that was inspired. But secondly, what he's doing is he's exposing greater sin, he's exposing hypocrisy. Because what he does there, thirdly, is he's extending the power of the law by exposing the sin of the accusers. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing here is what he does in Matthew. He says, hey, judge not lest you be judged. Before you judge, take the plank, that huge plank that's in your own eye. Take it out so that you can remove the speck from your brother's eye. He's exposing the Pharisees and saying, are you without sin? How can you possibly judge this woman when you are full of it? Take it out. Jesus does not tolerate deceit, but what does he do? He exposes it by speaking truth. He is truthful. He is honest. This is who he is. This is the Christ who will later declare in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As Christians, we have been made new. But the hard part for us when it comes to this attribute of Christ so we don't like the truth. Because the truth is, we are like both the Pharisee and the adulteress. I hope you didn't see that as like cold, and that, those are two people I can't identify with, because we're both of them. We're the Bride of Christ, yet we creep around, and we give ourselves over to sins of our past, lust. Pride, bitterness, anger, hatred. Things that give us immediate satisfaction but leave us empty inside. We're like the Pharisees. We, we jump through hoops to try to justify our actions. And we lie about our intentions. We're a combination of both of these people. Externally religious and empty on the inside. And when we come into the presence of Christ, we are fully exposed for who we are. There's two ways we can respond to this. Two ways that we see response to this in our, in our text here. We can be like the Pharisees in our text who one by one drop the stone, beginning with the oldest, who knows, maybe because they were wiser and they realized they have a life of sin and so they know they're not without sin. But one by one, they walk away. I hope you see the picture there. Jesus Christ, the one who covers the multitude of sin, exposes it to them, and what do they do? They walk away to continue of life living with a huge plank in their own eye that they can't take out and pointing at people's specks. Or we could be like the woman who finds herself alone in the presence of Christ. That's amazing, because I want you to get this picture. This woman was on the brink of death. She, this is a common practice. Stoning would have been done. She knows what's about to happen. She knows she was in the wrong. And when they start to walk away, she doesn't run and like, oh, that was close. Something keeps her there. And I don't know what it is. It could have been curiosity. I like to think that she's reached the end of her rope, that she's all of a sudden now desperate for something that will give her fulfillment, that will satisfy her longings. And she stays to know more about this Jesus God. What, who is he? But that's where she finds herself as we look at the last attribute of Christ extended towards her, compassion. Starting in verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus stands up, asks a question he already knows the answer to. Where'd your accusers go? Did no one condemn you? And she simply replies, The only thing we have recorded that she said, No one, Lord. Jesus, in the just and merciful compassion that he has, that he extends to all who find themselves in sin, says, Neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, sin no more. These words of Christ recorded here are the echoes of compassion spoken by Christ in John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus was without sin. Yet he did not cast that first stone of condemnation. That's not why he came. Understand, church, that what we just read in John 3 is that when we came into this world, we didn't need anyone to condemn us. We were already condemned, but Christ came so that we would have life. He came to save us from our condemnation. We are naturally enemies of God, dead in our sins and trespasses, opposed to God's will, disobedient and rebellious. Christ came so that whoever would believe in him would be rescued from the just condemnation that already existed. And so he tells the woman, I don't condemn you. He extends compassion and says, go and sin no more. Church, our Christ is the very definition and standard of humility that we should pursue. And we have the ability to have that impossible mentality among us because we find ourselves in him. His truth pierces through our fake religious exterior to our most inner parts and exposes us. But he doesn't do that to shame us. He doesn't do that to condemn us. He does it out of compassion so that we might find life as we turn to him and we sin no more. He rescues us from our deserving death so that we may have life Life being rescued from the death, and life abundantly. In the power of the Holy Spirit, as we strive one by one, side by side, towards righteousness. While this text does not serve as the authority or the basis for these attributes that we see here about Christ, we can take great comfort in knowing that what we see here are shadows of what the light of Scripture does tell us about Christ. Jesus is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. So let's be a loyal and obedient bride. We go back to the reading, Colossians chapter two. I'll just start in verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him forgiving, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He disarmed, I love this. This is talking about Satan, demons, and all the claims that Satan may make, but it also applies to those who might, the rulers and the authorities, those who would hold those stones to cast at us. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame triumphing over them. This is our Christ. I don't care what you've done. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's been canceled. Amen? Because I know that I am an incredible, great sinner. I'm good at that. I love it. Scripture says that we naturally will cling to the darkness. We hate coming out into the light because we get exposed. But it doesn't matter because what we see here in Colossians, no matter what you've done, you may have been the adulterer. You may be the Pharisee. You may be a liar, a thief, a killer. It doesn't matter because that debt has been canceled if you have believed in Jesus Christ. Praise God. If you hear this description about Christ and are able to identify with the Pharisee or the woman caught in the act, I hope that you see Christ does not condemn you. Because listen, the world will act like they support you. The world will act like they're there for you. But they're going to be the first ones to line up and cast that first stone because they don't want to deal with their own mess. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is compassionate towards you. He came to save you. He lived this life of humility, even though he deserved more. Emptied himself to the point of death to pay the penalty that both you and I deserve. So what's your response today? Will you walk away like the Pharisees did? Not wanting to deal with that exposure? Not willing to submit? And find out more about this Jesus who has done that, who's spoken truth in your life, and you don't like it? Maybe you're going to come back next week, stick around out of curiosity. um, Let me learn a little bit more about him. Or will you be obedient to his words? Go and sin no more, believe in Christ as a sacrifice for your salvation. Commit the rest of your life to following His teachings, surrendering to His call, and you will find life. You will find eternal joy. You will find everlasting peace no matter your circumstances. As we go into this time of worship, I pray that if that's you, that you would spend some time asking God to save you. Only He can do that. Ask Him to allow you, to give you the faith to believe the truth that we've seen this morning. To believe in this Christ. It's crazy. I understand that. To you it may sound like foolishness, but it is the truth. And this is the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Surrender to Him. For those of us who are Christians, who have already surrendered and committed ourselves to following Him? Do you long for Him? Do you long to know more of Him? Is your right thinking leading to right practice? Examine the humility in your own life. Examine the truthfulness in your own life. And I love how this week we get to see truthfulness and compassion side by side. We are to be truthful, but we're also to be compassionate.